0: We are going to cover chapters 24, 25, and 26 as we are closing, getting close to the end here of Acts, chapter uh, of the Acts part two. It's very exciting to see all the things that God has been teaching us at, at this point. I can't even tell you how surprised I have been about how much I've learned, really, in doing this study. I wasn't quite anticipating as much meat as there has been. Oh, thank you so much. Um, how much meat there has actually been in this. So many things um, about how the church is, is supposed to function and the demonstration of it. I think one of the most important things that we can keep reminding ourselves is, is Acts, is a book that was written um, as basically a first. The first mention of any subject in the Word of God is its mo- is usually its most clearly defined understanding. That's the, one of those plumb line rules that we follow when we do inductive Bible study. So when it comes to the church, the first mention of the church in this way is here in Acts, right? So from Acts, we can glean out all of our, our doctrines that we, you know, that would be foundational anyway, and then we can add to them as we see other things in other passages. But Acts would be the plumb line by which we're going to build everything upon. Um, with that said, then things like the subject of uh, the gospel itself, uh, the things that we see both demonstrated and the things which are actually clearly taught about, these. Are, this is the message of the gospel, this is what needs to be included, uh, the tactics of the gospel, how you might go about doing it, and you see that, the enemies of the gospel and how they're just, you know, demonstrated to us and how they're conveyed to us so that we can be aware of them and to understand that when we're out there giving the gospel that we're not alone in this, right? So there's all those points pertaining to the gospel. But then there's also things like Paul, just observing the man Paul as a human being watching it, I mean, because this is at the end first, it was first part of the book was pr- predominantly uh, heavy on who? On Peter. Now we're into Paul. So as we're looking here in these last few chapters, and we're, we're observing Paul, we're, we're going to be able to, if we're careful, to really pull out of his life, the things that are going to make application to us as Christians. And these are kind of fundamental things. How to Rely upon the Holy Spirit when to stomp the dust from your feet, but when or when to stand firm in it and go in spite of the warnings. When to, I mean, there's been a lot of things, right? And sometimes it's like clear as mud, right? As far as what we personally need to be doing in our lives. Um, do you think that with Paul, that it was really any different? That sometimes maybe he was not sure. Also, about certain things? Yeah, I would think so. Now, were there also other times like his going to Jerusalem where it was very crystal clear to him he was to go? Right. So I think that we can relate to that, that there are times in our lives when we are absolutely sure. I tend to be absolutely sure a lot, (laughs) which is my downfall. (laughs) I tend to, you know, head straight into the, a little bit like Paul, I tend to head straight into trouble before I give it a second thought. Um, But I think that one of the additional subjects that's come up in here has been the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I have found that to be very warming, really, to my heart, just kind of makes me feel that that. It's not as mystical as we kind of feel it is sometimes. It's really more of, of a real concrete truth reality that we just don't tap into. You know, because our doctrines on it are so um, weak, I guess. You know, the, 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 particularly my background coming out of a Baptist background, we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit. You know, we talked about Jesus a lot. And we referred to God who was the Old Testament God. Uh, but it was more in reference. We we hung mostly in the New Testament. We talked a lot about Jesus. So when it came to the Holy Spirit, you know, my understanding and my doctrines have not been as broadly uh, built or as solid. And as going into this study in Acts, I feel like this has really anchored me in a, in a whole new way. Um, what can... In thinking on that subject of the Holy Spirit, what are some things that you feel that you have learned, or have you? I mean, are there things that you, too, you went, wow, this is really cool <laughs> about the Spirit, I didn't know that before, or I, or I just never saw it demonstrated in that way? Just the whole aspect of,
1: okay, the Old Testament was predominantly Father, and then the Gospels with Jesus,
0: and now the Holy Spirit has his moment. Life. Right, right. We talked about that. Even It seems like there was a lesson uh, way back where I was telling you that the Lord had given me a verse out of the Old Testament where it says there are three times a year in which Israel shall appear before me at Israel with their, with their offerings, right? And when we looked at them in not individual uh, feasts, but look at them in the, on the whole as festival times, there are three of them, right? And we said, at the end, it shows that the first one is predominantly, um, uh, let's see, the first one would be the sun, which was the uh, Passover. The next one was Pentecost, which is the Holy Spirit. The last one is going to be the tabernacles, Right. Which, although that's Jesus coming back to tabernacle, but really, what is it? God is doing what in that end time feast? Vindicating His holy name, right? So it's the Father. It's predominantly the Father, which is amazing to me. Yes, Jesus is coming back to be the King, but He's doing so under that authority of God the Father, who is vindicating His name throughout the world. So we saw the we saw uh, Jesus, then the Spirit, and then we saw the Father in those three. That's exactly right. So, I mean, we could go into a lot of details on that and really see it more clearly. But having just come out of Ezekiel and understanding that that in-time activity, everything is about God vindicating his holy name, that is what the whole thing's about. And when you go in and do your Revelation study, that is exactly what it is. It started with, what w- with one of the references we looked at this week in Daniel, 3, or Daniel 12, verses 1 to 3, speaking about in that day right? What God is going to do. He's going to do what in that day? Bring his people back, put them back on the land, establish them, and put Jesus in there to be king as he was supposed to be from the beginning. It's all about God fulfilling what? His, his covenant promises to Israel, the nation, right? So yeah, there was, so there's that quality of seeing the, that triune God. Um, were there any other thoughts about the Spirit?
1: Mm-hmm. Um It seems like now a lot of times he speaks to us through our, you know, through our conscience or our thoughts. I mean, like you, sometimes we can know what's coming from God. like a nagging thought, don't do this or do that. Mm-hmm. Something of that kind of nature. But back in act, it just
0: seemed like man, he was right out there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The
0: that's, that's the one thing I find interesting. Very it is very all of course it's all very interesting. But I I have just found that as these it's like cream kind of rose rising to the top and it, until you slow down and do work inductively like we've done, there's a lot of things you would miss. I would I didn't realize a lot of these things were actually in the book of Acts. It just I guess I've always used act as a cross-reference to just look something up and then move on, where now I feel like more it's a, it is actually a doctrinal book, and it has some real foundational you know, truth factors in there that if you once you understand this, then actually all those other places that I had held on higher level are actually the support to it. It's the foundation and they're the support because the letters were written in response to the things that are recorded in the book of Acts. Why did he write things like Galatians and Romans? Well, it was in response to the troubles that he was having that's presented in Acts when the church was being birthed, right? Um, I, I, for me, one thing I thought was really interesting too was when the Holy Spirit was shown to come and be both validated and and established in the church in the same way that Jesus was, which I think is interesting. It it raised him as a personage to this higher, equal level where he should be. Remember, when Jesus came, he came in fulfillment of Scripture. What about the Holy Spirit? He came in fulfillment of Scripture. When Jesus came, what was his witness of his truthfulness? Signs, wonders, and miracles. When the Holy Spirit fell, what accompanied Him? Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. That's right. The speaking in tongues and the, the the flames of fire and healings and such. Right.
1: I think we've all heard people refer to the Holy Spirit, as him, but it really—it's He. It's a He.
0: Yeah. You have to refer to Him as a, person That's, right. a That's right. He is a personage. It's right. Right.
1: So right. like Right,
0: like, like the wind. Right,
1: right. Yeah.
0: Well, one one thing that was really cool and somebody in here got really excited about it when when it showed that the spirit told them to do this. To do this. The at, So mm-hmm. Why do you lie to the Holy Spirit right. you're lying to God? Right, right. exactly. So that brought them on that equal, on right that. there, that God and the Spirit are one and the same. And when you lie to to uh, God, you lie to the Spirit and vice versa. And more, like, indwell. That's exactly right. And it's a little bit more frightening in some ways. I mean, peace, <laughs> peace giving because that means the power of God truly dwells in you. But also, whoa, the power of God is in there and he knows everything I'm thinking and all that I'm doing. And <laughs> We're taking him right through it, absolutely. Yes. So you get a better, a little more concrete view about covenant that two shall become one. So, what was the traditional Jewish view of the Holy Spirit? That's a really good question. Does anybody know? Well, I do know that they talked, for instance, when their kings were anointed, if there wasn't a falling of the spirit and anointing by the spirit, then they didn't validate that as being the true king, which was one of the reasons why in Matthew, when Jesus, when the spirit fell and he was anointed on that day, that established him as the true king of Israel. So I know that's one quality about the spirit. Um, I don't know. I think a he, but I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. You should research that, Susan. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) That's a good question. Yeah. All right. So good, good kind of introduction to just pull us back into the book on the whole in our minds and our thinking of all the things that we've kind of looked at in this book. Um, Sometimes it's, you know, to me it's really important that we keep going back and kind of reviewing things that we've already looked at and then speak of them sometimes later kind of helps to gel it in a different way f- for us, and it kind of pulls all these points in and it kind of glues it together. I think that's for me, is beneficial. The more times I recall it and think about it and speak about it, the better it settles in my mind and stays put. Um, so I hope that that's true for you, and that's kind of why I keep doing things like this, taking off on these little tangents in the beginning. But it's so good for us to eventually come to a place where we really, we're not taking a, a book that we're just observing it and learning it on that superficial level. We want to go to that deeper level where where we can connect the dots and and thread the needle, so to speak, uh, so that you see the wholeness of God's word, how the tapestry pulls together and how everything relates to one another. I mean, how many books pull it, you know, how many people in in faith can really pull in the book? Uh, of Acts and say oh I see Ezekiel oh I see Genesis oh I see Revelation oh I see you know all these points and and pull it all together not very many can but you can now that you've been through the book of Acts you you see how everything pulls in and that's awesome okay so let's get started on our uh, observations of Acts 24 we're going to look to see where Paul is. Now, when we concluded last week, where was Paul? Where is he at the end of chapter 23? Where where has he gone? Caesarea, do you remember what was going on there? What took him to Caesarea and what was the journey there like? Just for review.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he said, well, we need to send Paul to Felix. Up in Caesarea to the governor. And Felix was the governor. Okay.
0: And so they uh, basically get armed guards taking him up to Caesarea. Yeah. I mean, and, and so and, he And how had he gotten even to Jerusalem? He had been out on the mission field, right? Completed his third missionary journey. And as as we saw in those weeks of study, we saw him going back and revisiting the places that he had planted the word and where he had, in some cases, like Corinth and in Ephesus, he had spent a lot of time, right? So now this last journey, he's going through and he's doing what in that third journey primarily? Saying goodbye. Saying goodbye. Isn't that interesting? So kind of now you have a better idea, too, of those three missionary journeys. The first one was he planted. The second one he watered. And the third one, he, he set his, his disciples free to begin to live out the things that they had been taught. And, he, and, and one of the things I found really cool was when he said to them, I commend you to the Lord Jesus Christ and to God. So he, he literally says to them, You're good. You're established. I trust that God's going to take you to the end. And I can step away now. I've done my work. My part, my work, my spiritual gifting is complete here. I'm stepping back. I must go to Rome. Now, uh... James and I were talking earlier, it says it's very interesting because Paul did seem to know that he was supposed to go to Rome. It doesn't say to us how he knew that, but it makes mention of the fact that he knows he's going to Rome. So somehow the Holy Spirit had impressed that upon him, correct? So when Agabus comes along, what had happened just before that? He had had a couple of other encounters with people as he was going to... He was heading back to Jerusalem, closing off that third journey. What had the people been... Saying to him as he was moving through, saying goodbye. Don't go, don't go, Paul, Paul, please, don't go. Right, okay. So when he arrives, then um, uh, at Cesar, or at um, where was he? He was at um, when he saw the daughters, the three, the three daughters of the that were prophesied. No, it was beyond Troas because Troas is where the guy fell out of the window, right? No, it was, no, yeah, 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 I'm, looking. I'm looking to, I should have looked this up before. Yeah, it came to Caesarea and it- so he was at Caesarea, okay, so he when he got to Caesarea, he stays with Philip, the evangelist, who has these three daughters who are prophesying. <laughs> prophetesses, right? But not they didn't do any prophesying, but someone else did, right? So he'd already been told, he says, I'm going to Rome. He kept, through the whole journey, we kept seeing him say, I'm, I'm hurrying back to Rome. And he wouldn't even go into Ephesus because he didn't want to get trapped there and get side- Sidewigged, you know, t- to not go on to Jerusalem as he had planned. So he had the Ephesian elders come out to him so that he wouldn't get trapped into ministry work in that city, right, and stay longer than he wanted. So he was hurrying to get back to Jerusalem. He gets, as he's making this journey, everybody along the way keeps saying, don't go, don't go, warning him, right? Uh, at one point, he t- he says, "Why are you in tears? Why do you bring tears to me? Even why do you break my heart? Because um, you know that I'm going." He says, "Not only am I going, but I'm willing to what? I'm willing to die if if so need be. If God calls me to death in Jerusalem for the gospel's sake, I'm even willing to do that." So he was very determined. Right when. He meets Agabus then, here's an example of the spiritual gift then of the prophet, which I think is really interesting, I'm still, I am still working personally on my full understanding of the prophet in today, today's church. How, How many of you kind of worked this all out and figured it out for yourself yet? Is anybody in here really got it down pat? Yeah, I'm getting close, I'm really getting close though, I gotta say, Acts has really helped me a lot. Um... Uh, Because I'm, you know, definitely where should we base our understandings of things like spiritual gifts? Where should that information be coming from? Absolutely from scripture. You cannot base your understanding of anything off your emotions or off of your experiences. And if anyone tells you otherwise, I'm not saying experiences are not good in your life and that they don't reinforce things for you. But that is not where you base your doctrine. That is not where you get your doctrine established. Your doctrine must be established out of God's written word. Why do you think that's true? Yes, because our hearts can even deceive us. How many people do you know have, you know, have really felt like the Lord was telling them something or, or taking them to do something, and they ended up in a big mess, right? Or, or they were just completely wrong. Um, so we have to do this. So as I look at Agabus, what do you see in that use of that exercise of a, the spiritual gift of the prophet? It, it names him, right, as a prophet, So when Agabus comes and tells Paul, Paul, this is how you will go in Jerusalem, right? He removes Paul's belt and he takes that belt and puts it around his own two feet. And he says, in this way, Paul, you will be bound at Jerusalem, right? What had Paul already been told? afflictions and persecutions and suffering await you. He already knew that. He had even said at one point about Rome that he knew he was even going to go there, but but specifically he was on his way back to Jerusalem and he knew that it was going to be a, an issue, right? Along the way, we saw, like last week, where we talked about, and you'd asked the question, in the spirit they were warning Paul. So what was going on there? Did they have an understanding through the spirit that Paul was going into danger? Yes. Does that mean the Spirit was telling Paul not to go or that just that the Spirit was letting them know? Yes, that's where he's what is gonna to happen to him. Which one was it? Well, given that Paul
1: had the you know, the, the spirit telling them to go to Jerusalem, you can't assume the spirit was telling the other people that the they opposite. Go they
0: go to Jerusalem. Wonder a uh, wonderful apologetic viewpoint on that. You did an excellent do you see what he did? He said, Okay. Obviously, Paul had been told by God that he that he was to go, and that when he got there, he was going to be facing suffering. So Paul had. So would God then give someone else a warning to tell him not to go? No. But what was being said there was in the spirit. The Lord had told them he was, in fact, going to, for this, that he was going to end up in, in chains when he got there. And the Spirit simply had told them that. In the Spirit, they, had, they recognized this was, was what was yeah, going to happen he to him. Tell him no, he now, him. Right. So now when we get to Agabus, Agabus shows up, and when he, does, he gives his prophecy, exercising the spiritual gift of the prophet in that day, which is our New Testament here we are laying doctrines of the best understanding of how is a spiritual gift exercised. What did Agabus prophesy? Was it about what bank account he should open somewhere or what piece of land he should buy somewhere or what job he should go get somewhere? No. It wasn't about Paul's personal life. What was it about? What was this prophecy speaking of to Paul concerning? Right. His testimony of Jesus Christ, what he was going to do for Jesus Christ. So number one, it was related to his spiritual ministry, correct? Would everybody agree with that? Okay, so Agabus comes with a word from God as a prophet, speaking about Paul's um, ministry as God's uh, instrument, correct? And he, when he speaks his prophecy to Paul, is this news to Paul? It's confirming what Paul had already himself been told through the Spirit, and this is a man that didn't know Paul before this necessarily. At least we don't know of him knowing him before he comes. It wasn't even his his friend's daughters who did this. It was an outsider coming in, showing up and saying, "Paul, the Lord basically has a word." For you, from me, I am telling you, the Lord has told me, this is how you will be in Jerusalem. And in doing that, the prophet confirms what the Spirit has already told Paul. So theirs might be a foundation, da- I'm just asking, do you think that's maybe a foundational principle about how the gift of the prophet should be ex- exercised in the church today? Another thing I always remember about prophets in the Old test is what they say comes up. Right. Right. We talked about that earlier. That's in the Old Testament, what they said absolutely had to come to true. So when you pull that forward to the New Testament, would you say then the prophet in the New Testament should also have that same plumb line? That if what he says does not come true, then what do you know about him? He's not a true prophet from God. When Agabus gave this warning to Paul, did it come true? Yes. So he was a true prophet. So we learned, two th- we learned a couple of really good things right there about the spiritual gift of prophecy. Number one, um, there is the gift of prophecy that can still be exercised in today's church. Number two, um, it pertains to the building up and the equipping of the saints. It has to do with the building up the body of Christ. That's what the prophet is to be working towards. Nothing that has to do with your personal life. Nothing as far, you know, as... Unless what you're doing pertains to ministry in some way, I would say. Uh, number three, it should, it should be something that is confirming to you something that the Lord has already indicated to you. That when the prophet comes, you're like, oh yeah, God did tell me that. There should be, a, <coughs> um, remember the verse that said, <coughs> spirit, um my spirit testifies with theirs. Sorry. I have cough drops in there. I should probably get one. All right. So all right. So that that's very interesting. It's not a lot, but it's a start right about coming to a little better understanding about the gift. I'm not trying to exclude new insights that might come later. But for the moment, we have a pretty good foundation of what we think the prophet should be about in our present church today. But it also helps us to eliminate some of the really crazy things that we see out there, right? About prov- the gift of prophecy, right? All right. So this kind of gives us a foundation where Paul's coming from. He's coming. He's been told he's going to be in chains. He gets there. Sure enough, he's in chains, right? Now, in in um, so opening in chapter twenty-four, then what's going on there? We have to look at the picture on the on the whole here. Who are the major players in Acts twenty four? Okay, those count. Those those Jewish leaders, right, have shown up again, Paul and, Felix. and Paul and Felix exactly. So Felix becomes the, the major figure of uh, of whom Paul will do what? What what is Paul, he's going to give his testimony before him? Right, he's going to have to go before him. Uh, what kind of scenario are we looking at? How would you what would you call this in, uh, in our world today? he's going to court he show, he's going before a, a, a court, a legal judicial system that is going to determine whether or not what whether or not he's guilty and what are these Jewish uh, counselors or the, the counsel from the high priest and the, and the elders and so forth what are they wanting? to accomplish they want Paul put to death because of his violation of this particular thing so when you looked at the the charges Kay asked us to give the a list of the charges let's let's do that here together the charges so what are the charges against Paul where do you find these in chapter 24 Verse 5, okay. In verse 5, what are the charges? <laughs> He's a real pest. Now, you know, that sounds that sounds kind of silly. Almost sounds like, oh, yeah, my little grandkids are a pest sometimes, right? That's not what that's actually saying, though. Did anybody do a word study to figure out what that was talking about? Of course not. What do you mean, of course not? <laughs> what? I say, because you know. Well, you know what a pest was, yeah. What would you call that in legal uh, uh, jargon? A A public nuisance. That's what he was being—is a public nuisance. Now, if you think of this from the idea of the Roman mind, who's hearing this court case, is this a problem to them? Oh, yeah, a very big. I like. I like that you raised your eyebrows. Oh, yeah, public nuisance. Uh-huh. Okay, so then he says he's a fellow who stirs up dissension. <laughs> okay, so di- di- stirring up dissension, what would you call that in legal jar- uh, jargon today? Okay, there you go. Disturber of the peace. He's he disturbing, is disturbing the peace. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, now that's very interesting because it kind of gives it a it kind of gives it a, a a nuance a disease something that's destructive, right? That's a killer. And so the idea of the past actually has a heavier thought than you realize when when you think of that the past is um let's put it over here. Past equal plague. And that almost doesn't seem to fit until you think of it in the mind of the picture that it's conveying there. The idea of a plague, which wipes things out, right? And then the, the third thing they accused him of was what? He was a ringleader. Now, this one, to me, was really interesting because of what we've already studied previously. What, what does this take us back to when you talk about this idea of there being a sect, Does it make you think of our previous studies on anything? (laughs) Um, I'm thinking about Galio. Do you remember the legal ruling that Galio had already previously made back at Corinth? When they took Paul before the the Galio and that particular uh, council seat, that particular basically another court case. They were arguing with him, and in the end, what did Gallio legally determine about this thing called the way? Was it a new sect? What was the problem with the idea of a new sect coming up in, as far as the Roman law was concerned? No new religions were allowed to be established. They could worship old religions but not establish new ones. So if you go back to Galileo, Gallio has already set a precedence. Now, you and I know about that terminology. We hear that one in the news all the day. Well, the precedent was already set that this or that, right? And therefore, if they are deeming this, then they can't do that. I love to listen to Kelly and the, or Greta, you know, they, they talk about precedences that are set. So once the precedent was set, which it has been, now w- what we know has already been determined by Roman, and the person that set the precedent was Gallio, who was at the higher end of the legal system. So apparently Gallio, ha- uh, this was quite significant, that he's the one that said uh, about this thing called the sect of the Nazarenes, or the way, it was not a new religion. What did he say? It, it's something to do with this, uh, disagreement. Among themselves about things that pertain to their own law, right? Because he actually viewed Christianity as what in relationship to the, the Jewish law? Sorry, a... Part of it. It was, a, it was an offshoot, and therefore it was under the umbrella of Judaism. So he didn't see Christianity as a new thing. He saw it underneath the umbrella of Judaism that because why? Will you tell me why? Why? Why did he come to that conclusion? It actually is. Oh, duh, because it actually is. And Okay, Susan, don't be so dogmatic, but you're absolutely right. Okay, because it actually is. Why is it? Because the, what's the root to Christianity? Yeah, it's the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things in the law. Didn't exist at that time. Right. 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 So, if you look at it from that perspective then when he says this about these charges against Paul, he's a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. Do you see what he's trying to say then? He's trying to say he's this is a new religion. Again, it's already been The precedent has already been set that it's not, but he's still trying to hang in there and say that that's what's going on here. And so that's one of the charges. But what's going to be the problem with that? What's going to happen when um, Festus goes to check the legal standing on this, and what's he going to discover? The precedent has already been set that this is not a new religion. It's not a sect. It is actually a part of Judaism, and that's how the ruling has already been set down. So the precedent has already been set. The standard's been set. Actually, the article's in there,
1: so it isn't a ringleader of a sect. It is the sect of the the
0: Nazarene. So the definitive article, the sect. (laughs) Okay. All right. Now... Is that all the charges? No. no. I like the big word and. Remember, every time you see the word and or, or and or but, you should mark it in a distinctive way because it helps you to connect the next thought or, and link things together. So when he finishes in verse 5, giving those three points about what the charges were, then he says in verse 6, and he even did what? Aha. Uh-huh, and he tried to desecrate... Or defile the temple. So we're going to put on here defile defiling of the temple. Now, Up to them they had a
1: little bit of integrity, but, after,
0: but at this point, they to their lives. Well, I think it's really interesting that that when we're done with this as we Went through this. What was Paul's defense of himself? These are going to be found in verses one to nine. How did you title one to nine? That chat, that particular segment of your paragraphs, did, or did you? Did you all do yours? Okay. Okay. Accusations against Paul. All right. So that's 1 to 9. I'll just do that. That'll work there. And then 10 to 21 is the next segment then. What, what do we see falls next? The charges are filed, and then what happens? Paul gives his defense, and what does he say about himself? <laughs> his defense of innocence, right? All right, so he's innocent. Now... Um, what I think it was really interesting because in the very first thing that you see in there uh, is he does admit to something of these charges, right? It has to do with his association, correct? What does he say about himself that he, that he actually lays claim to in verse 14? Because he says, I, but this I do admit to you. Yeah. Yeah the charges of which you now accuse me i do admit to you that according to the way which now how, now how does he correct it in verse finish it off they call a sect do you see did you notice that they call a sect they call it a sect but the legal standing had already been established that it was not a sect, that it, the ruling had already been s- set up for that. So let's put on here, verse 14 then, he counters what they said back here in, in, in verse um, 5, right? Whoops. So 5 is a contrast to 14, in case you didn't catch that as a contrast statement. Did anybody notice that and and mark that? We aren't doing some of these littler things that we normally do when we go through uh, the epistles, for instance. Like when we get into Thessalonians, we're going to do this a lot more where we look for contrasts and comparisons and so forth. So we don't see them quite as clearly when we're doing uh, things like this. But I did think this one was a pretty good contrast statement that they're calling it a, a sect of the Nazarenes, and he says, well, they call it a sect. So I thought that was pretty Cool, when he made that part of his defense. And? I
1: looked up the word sect. Okay. It's heresy. It's where we get our word
0: heresy. Cool. That's interesting. So sect has to do with the word heresy. Yes. Okay, so they call it a sect, but... Yeah, so you could actually do this. You could say, well, they call it a sect, right? That it's a heresy, but, and then he lists, in what verse is that? Okay, in 14, but I follow the law and I, and I, um, I yeah I serve God, the God of their fathers, believing everything that's in accordance with the law and all that is written in the prophets. So, so he actually reaffirms that it's not a sect; it's part. It's the fulfillment of the Jewish belief system of the of the promises that were made to the Jews. Right? Okay. So, um. Wh- okay, so let's move to now. You can do. I didn't do it for you, but you guys can do that on your own. Yes, okay, so where does he say that? In 13, Uh, nor can they prove it. Oh, let's put that on there, I like that. You cannot prove, you cannot prove your charges. And that's in verse 13. I like that too, Craig, that's a good point. Exactly, exactly. Did you not, I, I can't wait to get, when we get over there, we'll, we'll talk about it more detailed. detail, but absolutely, you got to understand too, it kind of reveals the motives behind why he even got Felix in, or uh, King Agrippa in, involved in this. I, th- I found it funny when I went back and after I had done all my homework, kind of reasoned all this stuff through. And then I went to start to read some of these commentaries and I went, what? They just totally didn't get this at all. (laughs) They're not looking at this as if it's actually a legal course, a legal counsel, that this guy holds an office or a position in legal standing. He's to do judicial oversight of, of charges against people, just like we do in our, like a judge would do. And he's got a man who's, Supposedly being accused of something that has already been proven innocent, and now he's about to send him off to Caesar. And and why? Well, we'll get there because it's really interesting. Why is why he's actually made this mess for himself? Is what he did. Okay, so okay, the next segment is twenty two and twenty three. What do we see Felix doing there? Judgment delayed. There you go. He Felix basically stalls, doesn't he? He's stalling. Uh, judging Paul's case, right? Right. What is it that Paul says in there about or what is it that's going on in regards to Paul? What is the delay about? Because you need to give, you want to get the scoop from what, you want to get the full story. That, and that's the excuse. He gives. Well, that's the excuse he gives Right. When you, drop, when you drop down to 27, the motive give, is given to you as to what's going on in Felix's mind, right? Follow Did you all? The Follow the money. <laughs> good good one, Craig. But he, he is wishing to do the Jews a favor. So that's, he get, this, the scripture gives us the insight on what his motive is. That's really interesting. You could actually almost put a great big heart right on that little verse right there so that you see his heart what's going on in his heart and in his mind what's making him being motivated so up in 22 and 23 where Paul's case is put on hold basically why does he put it on hold what do you think is going on there now there you go okay there's some more motive going on huh Okay, that's, that is one way of possibly looking at that, what, that he has a more exact knowledge of the way. But what is another reason he has a more exact knowledge of the way? His wife is Jewish. That's right. His wife is Jewish. So what do you think that does for him in his, in the, in his bias about how he wants to handle this case? If his wife is a Jew, What? You better not go home to your wife and say, I just let that Paul go. Because she's going to go, what were you thinking, honey? Right? Well, you know why he was wanting money from Paul? What, what was he hoping to have happen with, when it regards to the money issue here? Would buy his way out. If Paul would bribe him, then what would he have? He would have charges to bring against Paul that were legitimate. And then he could actually try him and convict him. Did you notice that? He says he, he was hoping that money would be given to him by, by by Paul. Therefore, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. He wasn't interested in the gospel. He didn't care what Paul had to say. He was just giving him opportunity after opportunity that Paul might come in and bribe him. And then he could go, aha, you bribed me. Now I can try you and convict you because you did something you shouldn't have done. Oh, absolutely, there's greed there, but, but if you look at this purely from the perspective of who is this man and what is his job, he's a lawyer, basically, he's a judge, right? He has to hear a case, and he, his motive has told to us, he wants to do the Jews a favor, which is to convict him. So although he could line his money with pocket, and maybe that's the greed part of it, I don't think that was his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal was, yeah, if I set Paul up, if I set him up and he bribes me, then guess what I've got? A way to at least charge him with something. It may not be what the Jews want him to be charged for, but he could then at least convict him. And, and how would convicting Paul of bribery, which is not a death penalty of, uh, um, uh, result, right? But how could this solve for him this part up here? These first three issues. It wouldn't, it wouldn't take care of what the Jews really want, which is his, him to die, right? Paul to die. But these first three things, public nuisance, disturbing of the peace, and being a ringleader of anything. How would this help Festus if he charges him with bribery? He can throw him in jail. And what does this do for Rome? It gets this passed off the street and out of his hair. And what else would it stop ha- from happening between Paul and these people from this pla- the temple? Yeah. No more disturbing, right? No more disturbing of the peace because Paul's off the street. So do, can you see how this would all benefit him even if he didn't get the result that the Jews wanted, which is that Paul would be convicted and, and killed, Put to death for what he did but at least for this man fastest if he caught him on bribery charges he could at least get him in jail and get him off the street stop all the public disturbances right and it, he would ha- not have that issue going on and at least in the eyes of rome he would have done rome a favor and this may particularly as big of a pest as paul really was in the a thorn in the side to everybody paul had a thorn but he also was a thorn right um, and so this would help Rome in, in the eyes of Festus. He was hoping to do this. He mostly wanted to appease the Jews. He wanted to appease the Jews because he had a Jewish wife. Therefore, he had a, a, a knowledge of it. And what I, I think of just what what Lois and all of y'all were kind of giggling about over there, which is you know that dripping faucet at home. You know, my wife. I just that's who I don't want to face at home, right? Okay, so it's really good insights here as you examine this. When we take it from being kind of ancient history and just using their their terminology, but bring it forward to our, our day-to-day, think of it as a real legal case, how things would actually be happening in us. And do we see these things even happening today all the time? Absolutely. We can take them forward and see the application of them. Okay. True, but you remember, what was was Paul's protection? He's a Roman citizen, yeah. Wasn't God smart when he picked Paul for all the things that he was doing? It's as if God knew. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? It's amazing how God knew. He picked a man who was both a Jew and a Roman to give him protections on both sides of the, the fence and then threw him right in the big middle of both of them. And said, go get them, Paul, right? I just love this. Yes. Don't you see a little bit, though, of... Um, like he, he gave him some freedom, and he... His yes, yes. Them. Now, you tell me, why would he do that? What would his motive be on that? Think about it, real quickly. Well, He's a judge. I Maybe mean, he wasn't quite sure, though, that he was... Well, do you really think you got to remember that the motive is he really wants to do the Jews a favor. But who does he not want to get in trouble? Himself, right? By law, what is he what does he have to do to a Roman citizen? He can't convict. He can't even put into jail. You can't even put chains on a Roman citizen unless they've been convicted. Remember earlier about the chains, how Paul then said, you put me in chains. How, how dare you? Basically, that was his get-out-of-jail-free card from getting that scourging because they had put cuffs on him. And by Roman law, can he do that without conviction? The answer is no. So here, why do you think this Roman judge did not put him in stocks, basically, and put him in jail, gave him some measure of freedom? Because why? Had Paul been convicted? Would the judge be in violation of law if he had done that to Paul? So he's playing the, both sides of the fence. He's trying to do the Jews a favor. He really does want Paul convicted and thrown in jail, and, and he doesn't care if he gets killed or doesn't get killed. Uh, at some points, he's, he's also just trying to cover his own job, making sure that he doesn't violate anything, get his own self in trouble. So he doesn't put him in stocks. He doesn't put him in chains. He gives him some freedom because by law he has to. Yeah. Well, you know, that is really true. What do you th- what do you think what is one of the works it's not part of this subject but it's like bringing in a whole new topic of subjects here. But what is the work of the Holy Spirit concerning sin? To bring conviction. So, and righteousness and judgment. Exactly. So you can bring Romans right in, the book of Romans, which by the way Paul wrote then, right? probably in response to some of the things that took place right here in the book of Acts, right? So when um, when he is hearing Paul's... What's really cool, it's kind of... Again, I'm thinking about Linda Henson this morning. I don't know why she keeps coming to my mind when I show up to class, but she does. I'm thinking about, you know, there she is. She's, she's kind of trapped in her situation because she's sick and she can't leave. Paul was under arrest and he couldn't leave. And he couldn't, but... Every time someone entered into his room, into his presence, he seized an opportunity to speak about Jesus. Are you seeing it? Isn't that just so cool? So every time he get a chance, he does. And when he does, Felix actually does get under conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts him, and he gets frightened by what he's feeling, right? Rather than responding positively and accepting Jesus then as his Savior, he pushes against that. But, th- but what's really cool is that the scripture reveals to us that he did feel a conviction. He was sensing that, can, do you think that people who have done wrong and they know they've done wrong, when somebody brings that point out to them that they don't feel guilt about it? Absolutely. So Paul also, he knows that, that he's innocent. As a matter of fact, he says this later, right, to one of them, you know full well. Right? Of this, which you know full well that I am innocent, right? his wife, had actually away from her previous husband. Mm hmm. Yes. Yeah, 18 or something. Yeah. hmm. So right. Yes. Well, and if you go back into to the Roman history and read about these men and the, the dynamics of these relationships, there was incestual things going on. Uh, now, which ones, we don't know. Some of our speculation, but we know they were going on. There, there was bribery going on for people vying for positions. A lot of it had to do with families, too. One family member would get in and do something and another family would either get put in or killed. It could go either way. You could either become in favor because you're the brother of, or you could get killed because you're the brother of. You know, just depend. So Rome was notorious for this kind of power play that was always going on. So so twenty two to twenty three then on the whole, we see Felix stalling, right? Or the case, right? All right, so those those who said that they had witnessed these acts did not also come forward. That was another issue. So he was stalling. He was able to stall legally, uh, I would think, in part, just because they hadn't even come forward. He His hands were tied. He could not convict Paul because Paul was right. Paul kept bringing up, look, I'm not guilty. The, they can't even prove these things. And his own the ones that had charged him hadn't even come forward. Does he say that in this particular one or is that in the next one where he says that, let, let them come to me. Pardon? I think it's the next one. It might be later, but it's true. They didn't even come forward and give him uh, in verse 19. We ought to. Oh, they ha- there it is. Verse 19. They ought to have been present before you, Felix, to make accusation if they if they ha- should have had anything against me, what is one of the fundamentals of law? You have the right to what? Face your accusers, right? And his accusers, the ones that actually said that they saw these things, had not come forward, right? All right, so um, the other... Th- <laughs> exactly, exactly. And in 20, because we know when we go back in our minds to... Paul going to the temple to fulfill that vow, and they accused him of what? Because that was this this next point, which was that they say that he defiled the temple, but what, right, they thought that guy, Trumpalopolis, whatever his name was, that that they had taken this, that he had taken a a Gentile into the temple, but had he? No. So they were assuming it, and we see that in that earlier um, record. Uh, In verse 20 also, he says, or else let these men themselves tell what misdeeds they found when I stood before the council. In other words, no definitive um, charges have been made at this point. Everything is hearsay and speculation. And And his accusers have not come to him face to face. So in this case, Felix is stalling this case because he has no legal standing to do anything else. And yet he wants to do the Jews a favor, and so he holds him, right? So how long does he hold him? We looked at it, this is in 24 to 27? Yeah. so Felix himself um, holds Paul two years until what happens? Until someone else... Really interesting about this is, when he leaves office, does he tie up things and take care of business? Isn't that isn't that amazing to you that this man could? I don't know even legally. How is it that legally they could hold someone? And the only thing I can say is, Carol, it goes back to the point you brought up about how come he gave him freedom. And don't, permit, don't stop or prevent people from taking care of his needs, right? He was allowed to have his friends come in and see him, um, to bring him supplies, to bring him food. And he had some limited freedom to go to and fro and about, right? He's kind of like under house arrest, He's kind of like under house arrest exactly. Now, the reason for this is so that for two years, he can hold him. He's not releasing him. Because he's got this. Have y'all seen uh, court cases like that? Even today, they hold a court uh, a case over someone's head for years before they finally come to a decision on how they're going to handle it. Right. So in this case with Paul, in order to do it legally, he gave him enough freedom that he doesn't chain him and bind him. But he puts him under house arrest, and then he allows him some freedoms to go, so that legally he can just keep detaining him. Well, you can't leave town, but don't leave town. You're free to go, but don't leave town. We didn't have the right? Amendment. <laughs> well, we don't know. Trial. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No speedy trial for him. OK. <laughs> <laughs> no. OK. Wow, so that sets us up. So if you wanted to title this chapter, what are we going to title? Okay, Paul's case, or stands, or however, before Felix. I put a subtitle under there, Justice Not Served. (laughs) I like that, (laughs) I like that's good. (laughs) Justice Not Served. It's all delayed. Everything's on delay. It's by technical, um, due to technical difficulties. <laughs> we're holding you over, Paul, for the next two years. You're free to go, but don't leave town, right? So there he goes. All right. So that kind, does everybody have a better understanding now of that particular chapter? Are there any other additional questions? Is it kind of iron out some things that were a little sketchy for you so far? Good. All right, let's move on to 25. We are still in um, looking at Paul again. Now, who are our, our major players? Festus. Now we've got a man named Festus. Um, in verses 1 to 5, what's going on there? Hmm. Let's see if you guys can. Yes, he's still in custody, right? Festus has now arrived. What? What do the... The chief priests and the, the Sanhedrin, basically, from Jerusalem, what do they want to do? They're plotting to kill Paul. They are plotting to kill him. They want him brought to Jerusalem. What do we call that today? Opinion. Extradition. <laughs> right? <laughs> They're trying to extradite Paul from Caesarea back to Jerusalem. Why? There you go. Not only to ambush him on the way, but even if, and even if he should make it, then they, uh, you know, what did they say about um, uh, playing uh, sport games on your own home grounds gives you the advantage, right? (laughs) So that's exactly what they do. So I don't know uh, exactly the whole thing behind what's going on here, but ultimately what do we see happens then regarding this plan for them to kill him? Because Festus decides to rule that he has to stay where he's at, what does this do to their plan to try to kill him? It thwarts the plan. All right. So we have extradition denied by Festus, and Paul's murder was thwarted in those first five verses, right? All right. So what's in 6 to 12? Oh, let me just put that on here. Um, I'll put the title up here. I don't know how you guys title it. You can do it your own way, but this is what I did. Extradition denied by Festus. And Paul's murder was thwarted. Does that sound pretty clear? Okay, good. All right, so now six, you didn't know I had so many legal terms in my brain r- rolling around. I watch a lot of TV. <laughs> <laughs> All right, six to 12, the next segment, what do we see happening then? What follows that? He says you're going to you're gonna have to come there, right? You're going to have to come down to Caesarea in order to um, have your trial against him, to prosecute him. I love the word, do you see the word prosecute in verse five? Let them prosecute him. At, at Caesarea. Okay, so in 6 to 12, what do we see happen then? <coughs> mm-hmm. Okay, he does. Now, what's really interesting to me, here's another legal j- jargon tool. What happened at the conclusion of, of their meeting there? They came in, the guys came down to Caesarea, they make these charges against him, right? But in verse 7, what does it say? They couldn't prove it. Now, what should have happened at that point? The case should have been dismissed. By legal standards, the case should have been dismissed. But, but he doesn't. Instead, what is Festus' brilliant idea? Okay, good deal. In verse 9, again, wishing to do the Jews a favor. So for some reason, Festus also has has a, a connection here. And when we did our look on our chart of the Herodian family bloodline, what do you see was the connection here? Why would he want to be doing these Jews a favor? Do you remember, do you remember, if I, I'm... Yeah, they're related, right? There was a relationship of a sister that's married. His sister was married to uh, Felix, right? And so there's this Herodian bloodline there, correct? Is that? Am I correct on that, or did I have that one messed up? Oh, okay, okay, all right. So, So it has to do with, obviously, political... Uh what do you call it? Brown nosing <laughs> is that a proper legal term. <laughs> he's new
1: governor brought in,
0: you know, and right. the
1: governor's job is in essence to keep the peace and
0: administer the law. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a joke as and the course of um
1: you know, hearing that Paul's as troublemaker and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. The Jews I mean, really to keep the peace he's gotta
0: placate the Jews. Right. He do de- well, he has to placate the, the Jews, yes, absolutely, and he is looking out for his own interests too regarding Rome, because if he doesn't keep the peace, who gets in trouble? He does. He is responsible to Rome to make sure that, that the Jews, they're all getting along and behaving themselves. When riots and disturbances raise up, the the judicial leader, which in this case is now Festus, he's the one who has to go and face his Roman um, uh, superiors and explain why he's got all these disturbances going on, right? It's one of the reasons why some of these um, uh, Roman Pro-councils and so forth lost not only their jobs, but sometimes lost, literally lost their lives. It's because if they, if they had too much disturbance that's going on, Caesar would come down and lay, lay down the hammer on them, right? We first saw this with Pontius Pilate. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, he, he had Jesus crucified to the Jews. That's right, exactly. Okay, so in 6 to 12, we see Paul is found innocent. But But this is what's interesting to me. So instead of letting him go free, what does Festus do? Now, what do we call that in judicial language? Passing the buck? <laughs> Not passing the buck. If you've been tried once and found innocent, oh, double. double jeopardy. Do you see it? Yeah, this is a double jeopardy case. He actually, and, and what's interesting to me is how does how does he handle this? When he, when he communicates this to Paul, what is he, he, who, in whose hand is this, basically? He puts it in, Paul, would you mind if we retry you in Jerusalem? I know you're innocent here, but we want to retry you and do it all over again in Jerusalem. Do you mind? Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, okay, sure, let's have double jeopardy. I don't mind being tried again on something I've already been proven innocent of. Let's go. But Paul says, uh, okay, wait a second. Now, I don't know if they used the terminology double jeopardy back then. But Paul knew that by Roman law, he had already been proven innocent. And is this where he says, you, f- knew, you know full well? He also knew that
1: the Jews had plot to kill him if they, if they
0: moved him again. Yeah, well, okay. Verse 10. Yes, absolutely. But Paul s- said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. In other words, I'm already done what I'm supposed to be doing, right? I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. So he's actually turning this back to Festus and saying, look, you already know I've been proven innocent. Why don't you just declare it a, a, a mistrial, or a, not a mistrial, a, a, uh, an acquittal and let me go. But instead... He comes up with this brilliant plan to do double jeopardy, and he tries to get Paul to go along with it. And instead, what Paul does in his thinking is, now, wait a minute. Why is Festus wanting to try me again on something he knows full well I'm innocent of? He has to have a motive going on here, right? Does he have a motive? What did it say in verse 9? Again, wishing to do the Jews a favor. So when he does this, Paul already is going click, 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 click in his mind. He's going, oh, my gosh. This judge is biased against me. I'm not going to get a fair trial before him, right? And if I go back to Jerusalem and get retried again, now I'm on their grounds. They'll either kill me on the way, probably. I mean, he's, by the spirit, he's probably being warned of this, or even your own common sense would warn you of this, right? Um, or I'm going to get there, and they're going to somehow trump up some other charges. They'll bring, just like they did with Jesus, bring false witnesses in. Right, to say things that aren't even true. So he, he's figured out, okay, i, I got to come up with another plan, and this is why he did what he did. Okay, I appeal to Caesar. Because he can't trust Festus. He's already been proven innocent. He does not want to go back to Jerusalem where for sure they're going to get him one way or another. So he appeals to Caesar. And in doing so, what does he actually potentially set himself up for? Going to where? to Rome isn't that interesting what did Jesus said to him when he was first arrested back in Caesarea when he appeared to him in the in the uh, jail sale don't worry take courage you shall also uh, testify of me at Rome so here we have Paul although Paul, Paul could not have set this up he could not have set this up himself this is so divinely God he know he has done what he was supposed to do, which was testify before these these leaders of Rome, these uh Gentile leaders, right? He's about now, in the next step here, it comes in King Agrippa to speak before kings, one king, and then later another, right? So what we see here is He's actually fulfilling what Jesus said way back in chapter 9, that he would be a witness of him. He would suffer many things, but he would witness before kings and governors and, and the Gentiles, right? And also the sons of Israel. And so sure enough, he's actually just fulfilling everything, every step of the way. Very, very cool. God just fulfilling in Paul's life everything that he told him right from the beginning he would do, Right? All right. So, what do we title six to twelve? Paul is innocent, right? I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to put on here Festus knows full well. I, as just kind of a side note to that, because what verse was that? That was um, um. 10, thank you. i got to mark that again. As you know full well, because that one is really important. That's in verse 10. Okay. And then Festus uh, requests Paul agree to a retrial.
1: Yeah, we got to remember there's 40-some Jews that have taken
0: an oath. and not easy to drink. Yes. Yep. Oh, they're venomously pursuing him. Yeah, but they also did it here again, didn't they? In here,
1: they
0: must be hungry. It's kind of like Jeremiah Johnson. Okay, so he appeals to Caesar. So this is how he gets this appeal to Caesar, and is because of this. Basically, I'm going to put it on here double jeopardy because in my i don't know about you guys but that that phraseology means something more to me than all the jargon that i just read in here oh festus wants double jeopardy for him and that's why he got concerned he can see then that this judge is biased against him and so he made this tactical move to to appeal to to caesar all right so that's a 6 to 12 Then in 13 to 22 what do we see happen there This is another interesting twist on this. Who shows up in these verses? King Agrippa. Agrippa. So it just so happened in verse 13 that King Agrippa and Bernice, who is who to him? Who's Bernice in relationship to King Agrippa? His His sister. So he and his sister arrive at Caesarea and they pay their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus said or Festus laid Paul's case before the king. Now, think of this in real-world thinking, why do you think Festus did this? What do you when you did your research on King Agrippa, what did you learn about him? Herod's grandson. Okay, he's related to he's of the Herodian bloodline. And how did the how did the Roman Empire view Festus at that time? And that family do you remember or did anybody see the insights about how they were kind of used as experts against the in anything pertaining to the jews they liked them because they had insight because of their connection to judaism basically and so um let me see if I can find my little thing here real quick, because it, I thought it was really interesting about them. When I did my... What, did you guys do your research on him? Yes? No? <laughs> Maybe? Okay, um, that's Felix. I think he's Jew... But he bought his way into his position. Hold on, here we go. Herodian uh, bloodline goes all the way back to Matthew 21. Well, he's,
1: he's, uh,
0: oh, uh, man. Drusilla, our sister, yes, right, exactly, our right. I can't find my note on this. But what I remember was they used him... As a as a co- consort for ex, for expert intelligence and understanding about the Jews and how they operate and how they work, and so anytime people needed the expert, basically he would be someone that they would bring on board. It's one of the reasons he basically got in favor with them. Is basically they used him. They they he had insights and understanding about the Jewish people and their customs and the way they did things, and they would use him strategically to come up with ways to basically either bring the Jews under uh, submission or to execute them if they needed right so uh, he they used him for expert advice so with that little tidbit of information why do you think Festus now calls on on him and and did you notice kind of the smooth way that he brings him into this whole scenario with him he, ha- he shows up, and while he's there, Festus just happens to bring up this conversation about this person, who, by the way, has been there for over two years, right? Has already been proven innocent. He tried to get him to agree to a double jeopardy scenario. Couldn't do it, so now he's bringing in the big guns, basically. I realize that it doesn't say that Festus brought uh, King Agrippa there, but since King Agrippa did come, right, while he's there oh, you know, I have this very interesting case. I'd like to discuss it with you if you don't mind. Can I get your insight? Why? Because King Agrippa was the one who the the uh, Romans used as their go-to guy to come up with insights on how they could basically subvert those Jews, how they could come against them. So Festus is using him. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, how can we lure him into this case so Festus lures King Agrippa to help him with Paul's case right I think you know Festus really is fishing for help from a well-trained colleague that's really what he's doing you see it okay so I'm not crazy right claiming he was at a loss as to how to investigate of course he is because why He's innocent. There's, there is no evidence and there's no way to, to bring it to its conclusion in that way. Uh, 26 3. I made myself a note on here. Ver, do you see in 26 3? Here's the insight that they give us in this text about him. Especially because you, Festus, are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So, Paul brings this up later. He knows why Festus is in on this. Isn't that cool that Paul is clued in? Why, yeah, Paul understands why King Agrippa has been brought in. In verse 3 in Acts 26, this is Paul speaking. He's about to give his presentation before King Agrippa, and he knows why King, who King Agrippa is and what he's been used for in history. His whole Herodian family has been basically a bought-off family to come against the Jews and to subvert them and and to rule over them in negative ways. So Paul makes this statement which gives us a little bit of insight even about what Festus was doing over in chapter 25 verse 14 where he brings Festus on where he brings King Agrippa on board to help him consider this case. He knows he's an expert That's exactly, it's exactly right. Go ahead. Absolutely. What did you say, Martha? Yeah, it was. It was, yeah, and I actually now that it's on me. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, there was a verse that I actually quoted in my homework that where he actually said, I can't find anything to write about this. That's the very end of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I have nothing definite about him to write to my lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. So now do you are you starting to get all the pieces together here? It's, yeah, it is absurd. By the way, P.S. He, that's why I had said earlier, Festus just really gets himself into a big mess here because he won't make a ruling. Same thing with uh, Festus did that, and now and Al Felix did it before him. They both got themselves in big messes because they desired to do the Jews a, a favor, and so because they were being because they were biased judges with a predetermined disposition to want to. convict him but they couldn't because he kept being proven innocent and all the legal standing as far as Roman law is concerned and how you handle a Roman citizen was in Paul's favor and every time they tried to do something with Paul they had to basically lax up and set it up as if well Paul you wouldn't mind if we go and retry this would you (laughs) wait a minute you know full well I've already been proven innocent. And now you're wanting me to agree? No, I I appealed to Caesar. So he's waiting to go see Caesar. Now comes in this King Agrippa. And again, what we see here, if you read through all the the little nuances that are stated in here, he's tapping into King Agrippa because he's an expert on the the social order of the Jews and what's going on there. And maybe even because he's partial to, to basically subverting those Jews on a regular basis too. But his biggest issue right now is, uh uh-oh, instead of my deeming him innocent and letting him free, which would have cleared this case off my books, instead I tried to convince him to be retried, and he appealed to Caesar. And once that's done in the legal courtroom, he has to go. Now he has no charges to make against him. He's going to look like a complete fool in front of Caesar, So he's groveling to find something, and that's why he brings in King Agrippa to help him view this case. I'm
1: surprised the uh, Jews didn't just say, hey, let him go, and then then plan to kill him
0: once he's under the custody. Right. Well, you know why? Because what would their motive be? What did the Jews want to do? Yeah, they wanted to kill him, but how did they want to kill him? Legally, right? They wanted it to be a legal thing so that they they can either justify themselves... Well, that's true. I mean, there were some who were, there. well, I, I would say of those 40 men, they wouldn't be the council. They wouldn't be the Sanhedrin, right? These are these other men. They, I know they did. Behind the scenes, they agreed to it. But in the public eyes, do the council want to look like they're murderers? I don't think so. Right. That was these 40 other men. And so the ones that are not on the council, the ones that are not the hierarchy, yeah, they're the ones, they're just the rebel rousers in the group who are saying, oh, let's kill them, let's kill them. But the official leaders of the Jewish people wanted to do it legally. Yeah. That's what, the, that's what the whole thing is this political thing, the appearances, right? Boy, I tell you, if this does not does not relate to everything we're seeing going on in Washington today, everything's about, exactly how you stated it and what the appearances are and you know, how much can you get away with. It isn't about actually doing what's right. It's about making sure that they do it legally so that they get the result they want regardless of whether Paul was innocent or not. They no, they are not, exactly. And are they any different than they were so many years earlier when Jesus himself was before that same judicial court? When he went before the Sanhedrin, And also, it's kind of like, okay, you know what I almost see too here? It just hit me. We had a precursor to this event right here, didn't we? Do you remember when he got arrested for casting the demon out of the young woman who was the uh, prophesying things? Okay, the um, divinations, right? In order for him to witness to the jailer, what had to happen? He had to go to jail. He had to be arrested. So... One thing happened here with the woman where they casted out the demons. That wasn't the major event. The major event was it was the circumstance which got him into jail so that then he had access to talk to the jailer, right? Now we're at a bump it up to a higher level. He's now been accused again, and he's gone into a jail scenario or at least house arrest scenario, right, in order that he gets access to do what? To preach the gospel to the rulers. Otherwise, do you think those rulers would have ever given him audience? Would they have ever had anybody lay it out systematically? This is who Jesus is. This is how I met him. This is what happened. This is how he changed my life. These are the miracles that he's been doing. I mean, could he, would he have ever been able to give them any of those things? It's like a person who gets... Play, I, 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 my job as a corporate chaplain was a perfect example of that. Would I have ever gotten a foot in the door to go into Taco Bell or or the Money Box or David Weekly Homes employees or any of those places? Would I would have had a foot in the door to just walk in and start talking to them about the Lord on, about things if I didn't have a job with that company? No. You get access by God placing you in, pl- in situations or scenarios Paul's scenario was not like a job. It was bad. He got, you know, charges brought against him, legal charges. But because of that, then God used him, right? And he wrote, and because he was under house arrest, he sat down long enough to actually write some things down for us, which are valuable to us, exactly. So it's amazing to me how sometimes we look at our lives, and you don't know wherever you are, whether you're doing a volunteer job, whether you're doing a a job job, or, or if you've been asked to head up a certain committee, or to go on a certain trip with somebody, whether it's a vacation, or you never know, but it's like, if you view everything that you do in your life as a God assignment, right? There's a verse in Acts chapter 17 that I love. I want, and I haven't quoted it very often to you, even though we're in the book of Acts, but I love this verse. Let's go back to it. It's in Acts 17. In verse twenty six and twenty seven, this is the sovereign hand of God, and I just see and such a great insight in this. Back when Paul was preaching to the uh, Stoics and the Epicureans in uh, at, at um, Athens, he says to this to them about God, who he is, his character, and his qualities, his attributes. Who this God is that they don't worship, this God that they don't know. He says, he made, in verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So he establishes him as God the creator, right? And having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. In other words, he determined, uh, Margaret, exactly where in history you would be born. And in what city you would live, the exact boundaries of your habitations, God predetermined this before time. Isn't that an amazing thought? And he said, why did he do that? That they would seek God if perhaps they might grow for him and find him, although he is not far from every one of us. Isn't that a lovely verse to know? And if you view your life, this is Paul being thrown in the midst of this jail situation and these false charges, but because of those false charges, he's getting an opportunity to go and witness about Jesus, the gospel message, to people who would never get an opportunity to talk to otherwise. Neither would any of those other apostles. Neither would any of those other Christians, right? Only and, P.S., would they have ever listened would they have ever actually heard as much as they did here? even though he keeps getting cut off? Um, if you're a judge hearing a court case, do you have to listen? So by law, they're bound to sit in their chair, keep their mouth shut for at least a portion of it anyway, and hear what Paul has to say. So Paul actually gets a captive audience. Because of the legal scenario, they have to hear Paul out, which they did up to a point when they called him insane right about the resurrection but he he is a captivated this is just amazing to me god determined he has made from every man uh every man uh, he he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek god if perhaps they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us god's sovereign hand in this is so cool and so if we look at Paul and this situation that's going on with him and we see that what he's accomplishing is a captive audience hearing the gospel message and God has already promised him that in the end, have no fear, I'm going to take you off to Rome. <laughs> Amazing. Yes, and he did, and, and here he is, that's right, So, and here he is. So he's speaking to Festus in 30, 13 to 22. Then what's the end of this? Well, Festus, and he, he lures King Agrippa in to help him, right? Okay, and then under that you can say, basically he is just, um, let me find my sheet here. He is um, 25, 26, I love it. I'm going to put on here verses 25 to 27 because... He has no charges to file, okay? So th- the issue here is he, in- he engages Festus, uh, King Agrippa to help him with this case because he has no charges to file, and he's going to have egg on his face in front of uh, Caesar when he goes there. So he's working really hard to get that. Festus was successful in luring or tantalizing, basically, Agrippa into the case, And it was exactly what Festus was wanting um, in order to help him basically with a loophole. He needed some kind of a loophole. That's why earlier we see um, him meeting with him regularly, hoping he's going to bribe him, right? He wants to find a loophole somehow to get something on him. And Festus basically is in big trouble here. He's got himself, boxed himself into a real corner. Now, the last little bit is 23 to 27. And how do we see this ending? Okay, Paul is, okay, he gets to, he comes out and he gets to talk to the king. He's, (laughs) I think this is interesting. Do you think he's embarrassed or do you think he's angry? No, Festus.
1: Yeah.
0: And the moral of the story is then, when you're a judge, what? Just serve justice. Serve justice, don't be biased. Yeah. If you have an agenda that you want to accomplish as a judge and your goal is to find in favor of one side of the case or the other, and uh, instead of looking at the facts and judging it fairly like you're supposed to, right? Like our Supreme Court, like our Supreme Court. that's right. Right. That's why I thought about him being embarrassed a little bit, too, because if he sends us off, it is absurd. I'm going to be so embarrassed. When this comes up there, he's going to go, what what are you doing here? Where's the charges? Where's the evidence? Where's the eyewitnesses? Where's the proof? You know, he's not going to have anything. It basically has nothing to define. Mm -hmm, That's it. That whole double role of governor and judge. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so I, t- I titled the, that last segment, 23 to 27, that Paul is innocent and Festus has no charges. And what this kind of does for us as we follow the, the paragraph titles is what we see is over and over again, Paul is innocent, right? And that they have an agenda, obviously. And the agenda is highlighted for us in those two statements that their desire is to uh, do a favor to the Jews. Okay, so we see a partial, a court that has partiality or bias, and we have an innocent man, but the end result of it is what we said out of Acts 17, God's in control of it. He is sovereign over the dictating of this, this is God's plan for Paul, and this whole scenario, if it weren't for this scenario, none of these men would have ever heard the full gospel message. They wouldn't have heard about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or the claim about the resurrection of the dead, that hope right? But because God, because Paul is a falsely arrested and put in this scenario, he's given that opportunity to have a captive audience hear his his testimony. That's pretty cool. All right, so from that, if you look at it from that perspective, it's like, yay, Paul, good for you. Okay, my turn. <laughs> I mean, I'd, you'd almost be willing in a way to go do that. But at the time, you got to know that he's he has to be fearful that his life really is in jeopardy. Right? In all of this. Okay, so... Right, right. That's true. He doesn't know what's going to happen at Rome, but yes. <laughs> Paul's case before Festus. And then and Agrippa. If you want to add that in there, just, you know. I put... I actually titled it King Agrippa is enlisted for counsel because of, of what we see there, where he's the expert, and he keep, they keep relying on him. Okay, go to chapter 26 now. We've got one more to do, and we're almost done. What time does that clock say? It's, there's 10 minutes. Okay, perfect. Nice. Okay, 1 to 11 is our first paragraph in chapter 26. What's going on there? We're, what do we see about the flow of chapter 24, 25, and 26? It's just showing this full court issue of the lingering problems of a delayed court system that where he's not getting the final um judgment made yet but that he keeps moving forward in this all right so uh what do we see in 1 to 11 and this is where we get into what subject yeah on the whole what would you title this say it again martha Okay, there's one standing. All right. And did you title that chapter? I like the word testify or testimony, because in this chapter, we get the most declarative testimonial part, right? So this is really the one where you actually see the gospel is so if you want to try to remember it in your mind later, where do I go to see where Paul actually lays out that because that's the part that Quite honestly, when you've done cross-referencing and gone back into the book of Acts, is this not the one that we tend to always go into? We go to look to see how does Paul present the gospel, right? So somewhere in your title, you do want to say that here's where Paul gives this testimony, right? That he testifies. So um, I'm going to go ahead and give it a title here, Paul's Testimony. And it's before wh- who? Before Agrippa. <clears throat> okay, in one to eleven, what does he explain? Paul's explaining some things here along the way, right? I love the way he kind of introduces this. He says, "Okay, now," um, uh, he says, "to patiently listen to me." Right? Is that what is he? Um. Especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I love that. Don't you? Listen to me patiently. Okay, and so once he makes that statement, then what is it that he does in the verses 1 to 11? What is he explaining there? Okay. Okay, his life as a Jew and as a former and, and former to what? Former to his conversion. So he explains his former life. Now, is this a good um, place for any of us to, st- uh, to start when we're giving our gospel presentation to somebody that we're interested in bringing into faith? Yeah, it really is. It's a great place to start. Let me tell you about my life before Jesus. This is why you need Jesus. My life before Jesus was like this. Let me tell you about myself. This is what I was like. Now, in Jesus, this is what's happened, right? So would you say, if you're just pondering on it momentarily, that there's a significant difference in your life before Jesus and after Jesus? Oh, yeah. Huge one in my life. Huge one. Um, Now, I I, I would like to say that I've arrived at perfection, (laughs) But, but I haven't but i can tell you that my life is dramatically different in the the things the way that i think the things that i put put my time to the 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 way that um my life has a calmness and a purpose and a and a focus that i didn't have before and for people who are floundering around out there in the world lost and they feel like the whole world is against them rather than god being for them would you say that the hope that you can give them by talking about what your former life was compared to where you are now would be a real catalyst to help a person maybe even consider coming into faith. Absolutely. So we see Paul do that. He explains his former life. So really there are two things he he brings up about his former life. What are they? One, that he was what? Okay. Okay. That he was a Jew and Pharisee. Now, that Pharisee part would probably be really interesting, too, just because of the fact that that shows that he's also trained, right, in, in, Jew, in the Jewish faith system, not just a common uh, parishioner, all right? And then in 9 to 11, he says about himself, what did he do before? Yeah, he was a persecutor of the way. The one that he's being a challenged or accused of, of being a, a ringleader for this sect. He's saying I used to persecute these people, the very ones that you're claiming now that I'm a ringleader of I used to persecute. Okay, that's a 9 to 11. Now we're going to go on to 12 to 18. What is his next portion of his testimony? Yeah. And then I, one day I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. What does he tell them about that meeting? What are some of the things that he highlights on? I mean, there's a lot of things he could have described and gone on about, but what does he highlight on? Okay. Okay. And when Jesus spoke to him, what did Jesus call him to go and do? Okay, so w- what he points out is, formerly I was a, pr- a persecutor against the way. Now, in this moment, first of all, number one, it was really something supernatural. It was a bright light from heaven. So this takes it to that level of um, uh, experientially with God that, that he saw this huge light, that there was a, a witness, basically, of his, of his conversion, Right? And so he gives a supernatural sign that show that that he met with the Lord on that day and that he had witnesses even there with him that did that. But that, that he met Jesus is super important. Why is that maybe an important point before he gets into the next segment? Who is Jesus according to the sect of the way? He's the Christ who what happened to him? He was raised from the dead. So Oh, Paul, you met this man, Jesus, who's dead? Interesting. So he starts by establishing, I've seen the dead, risen Christ, the one who was dead and is now risen. I met him on the road to Damascus. So 12 to 18, um, I saw Jesus. He explained how he came to faith, right? Explained how... He came into faith, and that's in Jesus, of course, right? So a couple of points. Number one, um, the risen Christ appeared to him. These are my words, not from the text. I just had to write it in a way that made sense to me. I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. I saw that risen Lord, the one that, by the way, in just a minute, I'm going to talk to you all about the resurrection from the dead. I saw the risen Lord. I saw him on the road to Damascus. That's how I came into this faith. That's what t- changed me from being a persecutor of the way to being one who now is on, on trial for this. So he speaks about that, and he speaks about um, being appointed. I was appointed to be a minister and witness. I'm I'm just going to put the whole thing of Jesus. I wasn't going to try to write the whole thing, but I just changed my mind. I can't do it without putting the whole thing on there. So he, he says, I was appointed at that point when I met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. He appointed me to be a minister and a witness of him, okay, because of my, my divine appointment on that road. 19 to 23, what does he do? What does he speak of? I think this is really good. He's explaining another thing. Okay, yeah, repentance does come up. He he talks about deeds appropriate to repentance, is what they need to do. But he, but he really is saying, based on the
1: prophecy from Moses and the prophets, that Jesus was appointed to suffer and die and be
0: mm-hmm.
1: raised again.
0: Um. Okay, in verse 24, he actually says, uh, while Paul was saying this in his defense, okay, that's the first verse of the next segment that we're going to look at. So everything he's saying then in 19 to 23 is his defense, right? So in 19 to 23, he's really explaining why he's really on trial, is this message that he carries, right? King Agrippa, I did not um, uh, prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me. Are you seeing it? So he's saying that this is why he's on, tri- on trial, is because of this message. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me, into, in, uh, put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying to both you, great and small, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses have already said take, was going to take place, did take place right? That Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of this, his resurrection from the dead, he should be then the first to proclaim both light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. It's a really cool part of his testimony. He's saying, I'm only here because they don't like my message. And by the way, my message is only fulfilling what was said was going to happen, and it, now it did happen, and now they're mad. They're mad because it really did happen. <laughs> Because I am obedient to Jesus' call, now they try to put me to death. And because I'm proclaiming that what their own prophets had said would happen, did happen, they're now mad. They're only mad because what their prophets said, I'm telling you, did happen. It's fulfilled, in other words. God's word is fulfilled in Jesus and his work. His death, burial, and resurrection. I witnessed the risen Lord. That's what brought me here. I used to uh, persecute these people and prosecute them. Now, I am being on trial for this very message, which, by the way, is true. It's their own prophets fulfilled. Isn't that interesting, the way that he brings that all around? So in this segment here where he's basically explaining why he's really on trial, He's really on trial because they're mad because he's proclaiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of what their prophets said would happen. And he gets the gospel out in, in his That's it, and in there he start, he talks about repentance, he talks about resurrection. He talks about the Christ suffering, his death burial and resurrection. All the, the the essential qualities of the gospel message are there. The prophets prophesied that the Christ would come, that he would suffer, right? That he would not he would not suffer decay as David says it in the psalm. And now these things have been fulfilled, and that's what I'm proclaiming, and they're mad at me about that. That's why I'm on trial. They're really mad because I'm saying God has fulfilled his word. Well, and that he's proclaiming it not only to Jews, but to Gentiles too. Right, well, and, he, and they don't like that part either. They, they hate the fact that now it's going to the Gentiles. How hard was that even within the realms of those who did truly come into faith, receiving the Holy Spirit, how hard was it for even them to accept that the Gentiles were being brought in? Right? Sure. Yeah, they did have a special, they had the speaking in tongues, they had the falling of the Holy Spirit, Peter had to go up to Jerusalem and convince the council up there, and then the council finally said, you're right. Yep, I guess then they have received it, okay. All right, so he explains why he is really on trial, okay, and you can elaborate on that yourself. 24 to 29... This is the funny part. What does Festus do at this point when he starts talking about the resurrection from the dead? What happens to Festus? Yes, he does. He has a meltdown, and not only that, but think about this: he's in the middle of a court hearing, right? They're they're having a court case going on, and he stands up and says, "Are you insane? (laughs) Can you imagine your judge doing that at your court case? You'd be going." Oh my gosh, that guy needs to be arrested himself. (laughs) So Festus shouts uh, that Paul is insane. Exactly. Yes, yes. That's exactly it. And so, but this, what's really interesting is this. This really all boils down to this. Last half of this chapter is all about what is the major rub against Christian faith, is the concept of resurrection from the dead. Um. I mean, today we, I think, a lot of it is even more fundamental than that. Which is, does God even exist? You know. And I always get so tickled, not tickled, but a little annoyed, maybe is a better way of saying it, when I hear these TV programs where these scientists get on and they start validating how billions of years ago this and this happened, right? And how man fundamentally is a part of the earth and how we came to, to become who we are at this point in history. And it's through this process. In other words, evolution is pushed and pushed and pushed. And as soon as they open their mouth and say that, I discredit everything that I see on that TV program afterwards, even though it's probably good stuff. But I get so frustrated because I think fundamentally he's, he's already broken and he's thinking about how did man come to be? right? Well, early in the, in the ministry of the gospel message, the fundamental issue, the biggest rub seems to be repeatedly is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did it really happen? So if you consider that now and you go back to um, the early part of Acts and also back into the gospels, when Jesus was resurrected and he appeared over a period of 40 days to thousands, right? He left a witness of his resurrection by credible eyewitnesses, which are now recorded for us in history. So what is the next point that that the people who are opposed to this would, would do? They say, well, the word of God is not even true. It's not even accurate. It's not even a historical document that we can rely on. So they attack the fundamental about the Bible itself. I mean, they'll go at every turn they can in order to try to disprove is God, does God exist? Did Jesus raise from the dead? And is his word about that even truthful and, and reliable? But I'll, use the, but I'll use scripture to find Jesus. That's exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. In the conclusion for today's lesson in 30 to 32, what does King, King Agrippa find uh, concerning Paul? Yep, so he has done nothing worthy of imprisonment nor death. Basically, he is innocent. So if Paul had not appealed to Caesar, he would not have been set free at this point, right? Now Paul will go to Caesar, uh, to, to go Caesar. Paul's testimony before Agrippa was just one more opportunity that God provided for the gospel message to get out about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you believed Acts 17, verses 26 and 27, this was God's design all along. He determined the exact time and place that Paul would be born, the habitation habitation in which he would live. He placed him there that he himself would seek for God and find him, and that then through his words, through his ministry, which God called him to, others also would seek God and find him because he's not far from any one of us. Isn't that awesome? great great lessons okay good chapters good review guys